Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Jason W. Warren, a retired lieutenant colonel and former assistant professor of history at the U.S. Military Academy and the U.S. Army War College. We also would like to welcome Dr. John A. Bonin, a retired infantry colonel and professor of concepts and doctrine at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Warren and Dr. Bonin are the authors of Reversing the Readiness Assumption, a Proposal for Fiscal and Military Effectiveness featured in Parameters Autumn 2021 issue. Thank you for joining me today. Your article opens with a quote followed by some stark facts. As Peter Mansour posits, anyone can design a military force in times of plenty. It's in times of scarcity that strategic leaders with foresight are most needed. The U.S. economy is hurtling towards such an era with the DOD fiscal year 2022 budget of $715 billion, failing to keep pace with inflation. And for the first time since 9-11, defense spending is facing significant realignment. What insight does the U.S. Army War College project draw down the American way of post-war bring to this conversation? We noticed that during this upcoming and during that time, it was the Obama drawdown that the military hadn't really done a comprehensive study to really help the decision makers on how to go about this drawdown. So this project started as a conference where we invited mainly historians, but also international relations professors and scholars to talk about their diverse time periods. So what we provided in this study was a comprehensive package that eventually became a book. And the idea idea was to help guide the decision makers. Previously, they had relied on ad hoc decision making or single studies. There had been a study, for instance, of the first Gulf War and you know what happened after that drawdown. But the problem with that mentality is it's, a, it's sort of a monocausal situation. So you don't really have the diversity necessary to make these decisions based on just one case study. That's what the project was about. And overall, we were trying to prevent the accordion effect where the cuts are too deep usually, and then the military is not ready or effective for the next conflict. In that regard, you end up spending more money. You have to have more budget outlays because you've diminished not just the personnel, but the capabilities a lot of times. Instead of having a minimal investment at all times to keep some structure moving, I'll turn it over to Doc Bonin at this point. Well, one of the thoughts is that if you can't afford to have all units of all services fully ready all the time, which is what we have been trying to do for the past 20 years or so, the other mechanism that you can use is to use an effectiveness model in which not all units are ready all the time for all missions. So you have to prioritize. This means some units are more ready than others. Some units are more modernized than others. Some units have reduced strength or cadre, whereas others are maintained at full strength. And this allows for a much reduced expenditure of resources in this declining period that we anticipate. How does mixed force structure play into this? Mixed force structure in the way we're envisioning it means that you will have more blended units in terms of the Army. It means back to some of our older ideas that we're now seeing creeping in. The old term was round out where you had active units with a National Guard or Army Reserve unit that rounded them out to be full strength. Now, this came with all sorts of conditions and caveats. It's challenging, but it's doable. What's the difference? These units will not be ready instantly. 
it will take some time to prepare them, but they can be equally effective once they're prepared over a period of time. Wars don't have to be won in the first battle, as we can argue we just had a 20-year war. What counts is how you do in the last battle. And so that's where you look at history, World War II, World War I. We had trouble in the first battles, but we won the last battles. So that's where a mixed force allows for the proper use of the Army Guard and Army Reserve as a strategic reserve that gives us depth and capabilities and allows us to save resources and readiness, but they will still be effective at the latter part of a war. Last battle versus first battle, I think, is a great point. The way that I equate readiness versus effectiveness is in the old readiness model, we were actually preparing for the last war because that's all that we could really predict. If you take the World War II draw up as we're getting ready to fight World War II, a lot of what's happening is practicing and training for what happened in the 30s and even World War I to some extent. So you're spending all this money and aligning the force structure towards the last war. And you always hear pundits talk about, you know, oh, the military's you know, preparing for the last war. So in this readiness model, that's the preponderance of what you're actually doing. And then when the actual war breaks out and you have to change, then you have to retrain and re-equip and re redo your doctrine, which again is more expensive. So what we've argued in our article here is that instead of doing that, although there has to be some measure of basic readiness, if we concentrate on how to be effective in the actual war that we're going to fight, then that is going to save you money and be more realistic. We're currently in the information and cyber fight right now against you know our adversaries, all of them, China, Russia, Iran, terrorist groups, whatever, North Korea. So trying to get ready, it's too late. We're already in the cyber domain and the information environment as doctrine lays it out. We're already in combat. We should be focused on how can we be effective versus how can we be ready. In addition, one of the challenges in if you are overly prepared for what you envision your conflict to be like, you are likely to be not preparing for the right conflict. The challenge is that once you get into a conflict, if you follow our effectiveness model, you then can shift resources more efficiently to prepare to be effective in what you are going to face rather than what you may have thought you were going to face and it proved not to be the case. Are there other factors to consider? Knowing partners on the periphery, reducing and reassigning active forces, things like that? Well, because in our model, the U.S. would have less standing force structure at the start of a conflict we would have to rely more on allies and partners. This is actually what we've done in the past, and we've always fought in some sort of coalition. Our earliest allies were Native Americans, all the way back to the first battles ever fought in America. So we've always had some sort of partners and allies with us. And in the sort of modern industrial pre-information era, we've had the same allies. We've been on the same side as the British and the French since at least World War One. So our idea is to get a head start on that. We already know that they're going to be our allies. We've already even in Afghanistan, you know, the latest sort of conflict, NATO was involved and so on. So we've thought of the idea of populating our headquarters shortages where we have trouble filling all the billets with American officers with these allied and coalition partners and allies instead of waiting for the shooting to start. And then when that allied officer shows up, he's sort of out of water. He doesn't know the culture. He's not part of the team. So we want to make them part of the team and make them effective before the shooting starts, knowing based on history that they're going to be there. The other aspect of that is more integrated units. Now, we're already practicing that to a great extent in Korea with the Combined Forces Command. 
and our 2nd Infantry Division technically has assigned for conflict a South Korean brigade. We're toying with that idea in NATO, and I think we should pursue that, where we have standing relationships with multinational NATO divisions and even corps with mixed nationality anticipated to be operating within the unit. This is how the United States leverages its smaller active duty forces that are deployed forward to provide greater contribution to a broader partner. The other aspect of that is my idea that we're recycling in this article of continuous concentric pressure, which is my strategic idea of how you operate on the periphery in a coalition and in competition especially, where you're not fighting a potential enemy, but you are continually and from a concentric position all directions, putting pressure on your erstwhile potential enemy and using all manner of capabilities, military, diplomatic, economic, and certainly now informational. And that's how we get some leverage during competition to have us better prepared to prevent the conflict or be better enabled when conflict starts. Right. And if I could just say something there real quick, too, off Doc Bonin's point, he, he talked about the in competition. So what's going on there is the DOD and really the whole of government, meaning all the uh, other agencies in the Beltway, part of the federal government as a team, have identified that the old peace war binary model where you're either at war or peace is no longer a fact. So we're actually in competition. And as I mentioned before, we're actually in, you know, you can make the, uh, the case that we're in conflict in the information environment cyber domain. So this old peace war binary matched the readiness paradigm better or vice versa. But because we're always in competition, you have to be effective now because your forces are engaged or can be engaged on short notice. So what's the way forward then? We're already looking at having a new model for even the readiness model in which some units will be at higher states of readiness and higher states of modernization and other units will be at lower states of readiness and lower states of modernization. To me, it's a, a logical adaptation of that idea is to go to what we're calling effectiveness, because then we would not necessarily have to have all the lower readiness units fully manned or fully active component. And so that's the major nuance that I think we're advocating is it's not that drastic a change from what we've done before during the Cold War. We had units that were at lower readiness tiers and tiered readiness, and we may have to go back to that. But right now, the Army is resisting even using that word tiered readiness. And in addition to that, the partners and allies that we mentioned before is definitely part of this because we'll have less standing forces. And also, as the article points out in great detail, there has to be a reorganization and re-equipping of our forces. All the services have a legacy model to some degree and some more than others. We have to ask ourselves in the world of precision fires, meaning that our adversaries can launch missile strikes on pinpoint targets, large targets, where you say you want to spread out your forces. Are these sort of ideas still relevant. But the backbone behind this also has to be an idea of mobilization. We've sort of lost the bubble because we've gone to this readiness standing military model, 1950. We've sort of ignored the mobilization processes, which have atrophied over time. So there has to be a concomitant building back of our mobilization processes. So if we're bringing these forces back online, you know, all the different services as, as they grow in a real conflict, somebody has to know and understand and plan for and then execute, which bases are they going to go to? How are they going to be housed? How are we going to get them there? How do we know who's available within the population to grow our forces? All of those issues have sort of taken a back seat over the last uh, 70 years. And for the Army, mobilizing is not just 
federalizing the Guard and Reserve. It's expanding the active army, as we have had to do even after 9-11, where we had to grow from 31 or so brigade combat teams to 45. And part of the answer to that is we've created these security force assistance brigades, but we've never really finalized the other secondary mission they have is to be cadre brigades to be able to expand to full brigade combat teams if required. So that's the other challenge that I think we're trying to push forward is the notion of better mobilization planning to expand the active army, not just federalize the Guard and Reserve. And there's other ways of doing that, as I've already mentioned, once you have cadre units to an extent with a reduced authorization level of personnel, you then fill those back up with either recalled individual ready reservist or brand new soldiers who have been recruited or god forbid you have to exercise the draft in a true broad war and bring new personnel in under that manner but we have forgotten how to do much of that since the end of the draft and since the end of world war ii we're going to have to bring back or create these theater commands that deal with these new capabilities such as you know theater information commands and theater missile commands We are activating the Theater Fires Command, the 56th, using the old number of the 56th Pershing Missile Brigade. Right now, that's a Theater Fires Command without a whole lot of firing units. So that's the other challenge we would like to emphasize is diverting some of our scarce capabilities and some of our active readiness capabilities into those theater long-range fires commands that we currently don't have the units in today. So that's a growth area, and that has to come at somebody's expense. This was a lot of fun and very enlightening. I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcast Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.